Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast of Latrobe Asia, where we examine the news, events, and general happenings of Asia's states and societies. I'm your host, Nick Bisley, the Executive Director of Latrobe Asia. And in this podcast, we're going to examine China's controversial activities in the East and South China Seas. Today, I'm joined by longtime China scholar and analyst, Lindy Jacobson. Linda is a visiting professor at the United States Study Center at Sydney University, a non-resident fellow of the Lowy Institute, founding director of China Matters, a new not-for-profit public policy initiative, and most importantly, a member of the Latrobe Asia Advisory Board. Linda, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So in the past 12 to 18 months, there's been a number of really quite high-profile things that have occurred in the East and South China Sea. The declaration of the Air Defence Identification Zone, the CNOC oil rig that was drilling in what most people think are uh, Vietnam's exclusive economic zone, and then earlier this year, the widespread publication of photos showing quite significant land reclamation in the Spratly Island chain in the South China Sea. But these are only the most high profile of what's been a considerable range of activities. Perhaps start with the broad question, which is why is China becoming so much more active in what it's doing in these two seas? I think, Nick, there are a number of reasons. Firstly, Xi Jinping, after he came to power at the end of 2012, made it clear that he would favor a determined response from China on issues that deal with sovereignty. He was of the opinion that for years China had been slightly too soft because China had emphasized the need for stability, stability meaning peace, and others had encroached on China's sovereign rights because China had been either what they say is passive or what they would say is conciliatory. So Xi Jinping comes to power, he says, we need to staunchly safeguard our sovereign rights while at the same time maintaining stability. So we'll probably get back to that phrase in a little while. So that's one reason. Second reason is after 25 years of even 30 years of rapid modernization, China now has the capacity with its law enforcement agency vessels to patrol, to safeguard, to quote unquote assert sovereignty in a way that it never could before. If one sees the photographs of China's new Coast Guard vessels alongside a Vietnamese or a Filipino vessel, it's nearly like watching an elephant beside an ant. It's huge, the difference now, in both the size and the scope uh, when we look at the Coast Guard fleets. So China now has the capacity to do what I think it's wanted to always do, but hasn't because it has not had that capacity, but also because it felt that it had to kowtow, it had to take into account others' demands when it was weak and needed others to continue to modernize. Is there also a sense that the sea has become more important to what China is? That's to say its, its economic growth in the past had been kind of internally focused, moving people from the countryside to the city. Is there a sense that the sea is actually more important to its overarching goals? Absolutely, and I'm really glad you brought that up because I should have mentioned that as the third reason why we're seeing a new behavior from China in its so-called near seas. And that is precisely what you said. The maritime domain has for about five to ten years now 
been emphasized, it's not only maritime security. I think it's important to remember that China is paying a huge amount of attention to maritime economy, maritime scientific endeavors, maritime environment protection, and so on and so forth. The maritime is, like you said, has become such an important domain. After all, so much of China's energy and raw materials come via the sea to China, and they are paramount to that economic growth continuing. So what does China want from its activities, and put it bluntly? Is there a kind of large plan? Is there a sort of big strategy at play? Some people argue, you know, there's this grand master plan out there, submarine bases in the South China Sea or, or what have you. Or are things a bit more ad hoc in terms of what they're trying to achieve? Well, that was a very big question that you asked. Really big question, does China have a grand strategy? China doesn't have a grand strategy if you define that as written document approved by all senior leaders in the Chinese Communist Party of these are the steps which will take us to our goal. And our goal is to probably, I think the Chinese goal, but in vague terms articulated so far, is to dominate their near seas. They want to make sure, A, they'll never be attacked from the sea because they're very aware of the humility and weakness of China approximately 100 years ago when Western powers and Japanese powers came from the sea to put China on its knees. And secondly, they want to ensure that they will control enough of the near seas to make sure that no one will deprive them of the energy and raw material shipments coming into China. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't believe in free sea lines of communication which I think is important too. But back to your question. So is there a grand strategy which has been articulated, approved of? I don't think so. Furthermore, I do think that this ambiguous way of Xi Jinping articulating that we need to more forcefully defend our sovereignty, but we need to absolutely maintain stability, is being used by many maritime security actors to promote their own interests. So. On the large level, I think the answer to my question is no, that there is a desire to dominate, but um, how it's actually going to happen hasn't been spelt out in any formal way. And on top of that, the new leader, who actually isn't so new anymore, he's after all been two and a half years in power, has made it possible for many different actors within the system to advance their own interests, their personal interests or their institutional interests, by taking advantage of this ambiguity. So there's a sort of larger sense of we want security, we want to ensure we're not threatened, we're not vulnerable, we want to ensure our economic interests are maximised, but beyond that, you you don't buy into this argument that there's a grand plan to secure the South China Sea or anything along those lines. I think an aspirational goal is definitely there. I do think that if China could choose, Nick, China would say we want the near seas to be our seas. South China Sea would become a Chinese sea. So I do agree with those people who say that that's China's goal. But it's an aspirational goal. China is pragmatic. China knows that it needs the United States in many, many ways. Uh, China knows that the United States is not going to go away anytime soon. So China is finding ways to increase its own influence in the near seas under the circumstances which it acknowledges are reality.
In a major report that you wrote and that was published last year by the Lowe Institute, which looks at these issues and particularly looks at the different players that you were referring to that are involved in China's uh, maritime strategy, I guess you could call it, an interesting phrase in that which caught my eye was this idea that Chinese maritime policy is marked by a kind of fractured authority. And I wonder if you could just explain what you meant by that and then what are the implications of the fact that authority is fractured in this way for how China's maritime ambitions play out. That report, China's Unpredictable Maritime Security Actors, I, based on the research I had done, explained that China's foreign policy decision-making has become fractured because there are so many groups vying to influence the top leaders' decisions because China has so many new, expanded, growing global interests and with them have come these interest groups who all have an opinion how China's foreign policy should be made. Now put this in the context of maritime security, I think because of the growing importance of the maritime domain in both security, environmental sense, economic sense, scientific sense and what have you sense, again we see a proliferation of actors who were so-called quote-unquote not very important actors generally speaking some time ago. Now, the maritime is important. Senior leaders are paying attention. There is money to be had from the central government coffers to promote X, Y, and Z. We've seen this with Sansha, this new so-called city in the middle of the ocean, which has been promoted to the status of a city and is receiving huge amounts of investment from both local and central governments and is a very controversial project. It has about 1,500 people who live exactly. in it. Exactly, and so-called has a quote-unquote jurisdiction of hundreds and thousands of square miles, basically the whole South China Sea, if you'd ask the Chinese. So these actors who before were not important feel that they have a chance now to be important and they are pushing the boundaries of the permissible. So back to that directive, as long as they don't do something that causes war, and I would say there's a lot of things that come very close to pushing China into a very tense situation which could cause military conflict, but you can just stop short of that. There's a wide scope of actions that these actors can take and still fulfill the decree that they are promoting or defending sovereignty. And that's what they use. They say, in the name of China's sovereignty, we are going to establish the city of Sansha. We are going to build runways and ports and so forth on these small little islands or reefs or shoals even where land reclamation has taken place. There's a maritime consciousness at the moment sweeping through coastal areas of China, but there's also this rights defense consciousness, as they say in Chinese. And you can sort of justify any action by saying that we are defending sovereignty. And that's what I meant when it's fractured. There's so many different groups, also official groups. These aren't just marginal groups. They're people like the Coast Guard, local governments, tourism agencies, but also the officials who are in charge of promoting tourism in Guangdong province. So there are a lot of government actors too who have become maritime security actors, pushing because they stand to benefit from it. Has that tended to increase a sort of sense of uncoordinated quality of what's going on and a a kind of sense of the command and control from Beijing is is not what they might like. There was a period, 2009, 2010, 2011, when it was very unclear was inattention by senior leaders actually leading to an increase in uncoordination 
or bad coordination, one should say. Since Xi Jinping came to power, there's very clear indications that he wants better coordination, and I think he's already seeing that happen. Um, there's been a consolidation of many of the maritime law enforcement agencies into a consolidated Coast Guard, and so on. So there is an effort to do more, but because of the way the Chinese system works, there is still room for maneuver. Xi Jinping can't possibly be on top of every decision made. And these local actors, it doesn't mean because they're not coordinating well that they wouldn't also be pushing the envelope. I think one can have coordination and good coordination, but still have local government actors and government in the broadest of senses pushing the envelope. And then we haven't spoken about the PLA. Because the PLA is a maritime security actor for obvious reasons. The PLA Navy and the PLA generally is tasked with defending sovereignty. Certainly in the maritime sphere, we are seeing indications that the PLA would like to be more active. According to my research findings, they took upon themselves more of a coordinator role during that very contentious oil rig episode when the Chinese towed the oil rig to what most people would definitely see as Vietnam EEZ waters. So I think, again, you can have good coordination. In fact, maybe there's better coordination today than three, four years ago between the PLA and the Coast Guard. But they are perhaps pushing the boundaries of the permissible. We don't know. Hmm. It seemed to me that the low presence of the PLA looked a bit like an effort to try to keep the tensions that are going to come from this down in the sense that when there have been clashes with Vietnamese fishermen or with uh, Indonesian fishing vessels of the Philippines, you can say it's not military, this is not the PLA, it's Coast Guard, state law enforcement entities or, or what have you. Do you think it was that considered? It's important to bear in mind, even though I share the concerns of what China is doing with its land reclamation projects out on the shoals and so on, that China is not using guns or cannons to defend its sovereignty. It is using civilian law enforcement agency vessels. In the background has often loomed the PLA. But I think the political leadership, I have to say, when we talk about China, does want the PLA to stay in the background. And I think that would be a very worrying sign if the PLA was tasked with defending sovereignty on issues of contested waters and maritime rights. So I think it's very intentional that Communist Party leadership wants the PLA to remain in the background, but I think the PLA perhaps themselves would like to have a bit more of a role, at least a coordinating role. So China's increased activity, some have said assertiveness in its maritime activity, of course involves competing claims with other countries. It's an inherently international problem or policy environment. There are disputes with at least six or seven different countries and entities about who owns what and the claims that follow from that. How dangerous is the situation, do you think? There is a bit of a debate out there about the extent to which we've got new flashpoints, the potential trigger for major conflict. You talked earlier about people sort of walking up to the point of conflict and not quite getting there. What's your sense of how risky things are? I think one always has to be concerned about an incident, whether it's an accident or intentional incident by a local actor, spinning out of control and causing a terrible situation between the governments of two countries. That perhaps worries me the most. But generally speaking, I think China 
Vietnam, the Philippines, Japan, and all the countries involved, including the United States, all want peace. No one is seeking war. And so I feel less concerned that any of them would change their policies and be willing to take the risk of fatalities in a military conflict to further their interests. I do think we're going to see this tense situation continuing, but I don't see a war breaking out. So where do you think this is going to end? Is there an end game around this? Does China get largely what it wants? Will America, say, recognize this space sphere influence, call it what you will? Because there has been a tendency, policy in the past, in, in many cases, was we know we've got differences of opinion, set them aside and we'll get along with the day-to-day. But of course, at some point, there has to be a reckoning. At some point, the differences of opinion about who owns the submerged shoals, the islands, the reefs, the rocks, needs to be finalised. Do you have any sense of how that may play out, just in your crystal ball? I would emphasise a few points. China thinks long-term. I think that there's something to believe in those who say that Xi Jinping wants to position China in a way that when he leaves power in 2022, if everything goes according to plan, he'll leave China in a better situation to negotiate than when he came to power in 2012. They are thinking long term. I think China themselves think that with investment opportunities and preferential treatment, both in trade and in investment, it will woo its Southeast Asian neighbors in a manner which will soften the resolve of countries like the Philippines and Vietnam. I don't think that will happen, but I think that's the Chinese thought behind it. As for Japan, and we haven't spoken specifically about the East China Sea, I think there is a, hopefully, I say hopefully, a possibility that we will return to a status quo, which means that we will put this issue aside. We will compartmentalize that issue and get on with developing the relationship, which is, after all, very much based on interdependence. Perhaps push the resolution of the Senkaku Diaoyu Islands forward. So I don't think the day of reckoning is going to come anytime soon. Can can be kicked down the road for some time to come. Thanks for joining us, Linda. Thank you, Nick. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast of the Trove Asia. You can follow Linda on Twitter at Jakobson Linda, that's J-A-K-O-B-S-O-N-L-I-N-D-A, or me at Nick Bisley. And if you like this podcast, you can subscribe to Asia Rising on iTunes or SoundCloud. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.